as I open the word. Would you pray with me again? Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us hearts that are open to hearing from your Holy Spirit. I pray that your word, with all of its power, would comfort and convict. And through it, our faith would increase. Pray that you'd help me to preach with clarity and conviction. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would work in every heart here. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go to the book of 1 Peter, and we will be here for about two months approximately, I want to ask you, do you feel at home in 2020? Does this feel like the year that you had hoped for? Does your house feel like the place that you want to be? After being there for nearly three months straight, some people even longer than that. Does your community feel like the community that you want it to be? Does the country, as you look for the next year or five years or ten years, does your country look like home? And I ask this partly because this is such a historically terrible year in so many ways that I think the obvious answer to the question is no. And as I go to the book of 1 Peter, I do so for a few reasons, but primarily because Peter addresses his letter to strangers and aliens who would say with the old song that this world is not our home, we are just passing through. And my desire from this series is to encourage you and to comfort you, to give you a solid hope that no matter what happens, that you are known by God and loved by God and have a future that nothing can touch. I don't want to make light of the things that are happening this year. They are undeniably awful. In addition to global sickness, we have seen the divisions of our country grow deeper and deeper. Peaceful protests have become violent riots. Police officers who are trying to do their duty to the best of their ability are being ambushed and shot in their police cars. And the election that many people were hoping would put an end to all of this is probably only going to make it worse, regardless of who wins. And so, friends, I don't mean to be negative or pessimistic. I want to be honest about our moment in history. And if the news makes you anxious, I want to suggest to you, perhaps this time is inviting you to make your heart long for the kingdom of God. Peter writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I asked for that passage to be read because Peter is someone, maybe a little bit like Chris, who loved to stick it to the man. And yet as Christ interacted with Peter, he experienced some strange and humbling realities. 
you understand Peter's heart when you think through the things that led up to the conversation with Jesus that Virgil and, and uh, Kevin just read. Peter is known for speaking before thinking, or perhaps speaking without thinking at all. He's known for walking on water and sinking in water. He is known for pulling out a sword to defend Jesus and then having Jesus tell him to put it away because those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He is known for confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus praises and encourages him because the Father revealed that to him. And then in the next breath, Peter tries to persuade Jesus to not go to the cross. And Jesus addresses him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on things of God. And finally, Peter is known, in spite of his confession, for shamefully denying the Lord three times when Jesus is on trial. And you know, failure has a way of breaking and changing a person. So the writer of this letter is not the same man that Jesus called to leave his nets and follow him. In fact, when Jesus describes how Peter would be changed, you heard Virgil read it just a moment ago. He said, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted to, but when you are old, another will dress you and stretch out your hands and lead you to where you do not want to go. And what that means, history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. His hands were stretched out on a cross just like Jesus was. And I don't know if you caught it, but at the end of that reading, Jesus said, excuse me, John explains Jesus said this to describe the death that Peter would glorify God by. In other words, Peter's horrific end was a means of showing how precious Jesus Christ is. That the risen Savior is worth dying for. The risen Savior is worth suffering for. Because he is more precious than any momentary suffering that we can endure. And so I've got three points for you today. We're covering two verses, and there is a lot in them. And the first point that I want to assure you with is the shepherd that Jesus sent. The shepherd that Jesus sent. And it's literally just the first line of the book. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle is a word that means sent He's someone that carried the teachings of Jesus and the good news that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, and he carried that message, and he proclaimed it far and wide all across the ancient world. But he's not just someone who made an announcement. He's someone that deeply loved and cared for the people that he spoke to. One of the themes throughout this book is the theme of being a shepherd and being a sheep, recognizing that as sheep, we don't know what's coming or where we're going or what's best, but we have a good shepherd who cares for us. And Jesus called Peter, you heard three times, he said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus' heart for the church is that every church member would be nurtured and encouraged and strengthened through his word. And Peter's primary ministry was taking the good news of Jesus and encouraging and strengthening and helping other people with it. That is a time 
that is a message for a time like this, and it is a message that would have helped the readers of this letter in the first century. If you don't feel at home now, let me say just a word about the sheep that Jesus was addressing. So first point is the shepherd that Jesus sent. Let me talk to you for a minute about the sheep that Jesus saved. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time here. I'm going to read the the rest of verse 1 and 2. Peter says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, before I talk about any of the terms that are so loaded in those verse, let me say just a word about the sheep that, G, that, that Peter was specifically addressing here. I believe these descriptions can be descri- applied to all of us, but first they applied to the original readers of this letter. And so when it talks about exiles and the dispersion, what is Peter talking about? People have had a couple different ideas. Some thought that perhaps he was addressing those who first heard him preach on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If you remember Acts chapter 2, it's right after Jesus has ascended to heaven. Peter and the other apostles are in Jerusalem, and they start telling people the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And some people believe, but it creates division very early on. And the church is persecuted very early from Jerusalem, and so many early believers leave Jerusalem and spread out all over the ancient world. And some have said that dispersion from Jerusalem is explaining who he's addressing in these five areas. The only problem with that theory is that Peter, later in this letter, says to those who are reading it that the gospel was preached to them, and it sort of implies that someone else did the preaching. So while that might be the explanation to who he's writing, I think there's actually a better explanation that helps us understand who these readers were and what similarities we might have with them. We cannot say for absolute sure, but the, empire, the emperor Claudius established colonies in all five of the regions named here. So think about your, your Roman history for a minute. Rome loved to conquer Rome loved to expand. In fact, even in Night at the Museum, you remember that tiny little soldier? He, he played by, by Owen. He's, he says, expand or die. We have to build. And, and the first time you see those little guys, they're trying to knock down the wall from their display in the museum because Romans loved to expand. Well, this was true in the time when Peter was writing and Claudius the only emperor to establish colonies specifically in these five areas, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what they would do when they established colonies is they would try to set up little mini Romes. So they would have a Colosseum. They would try to make sure that there was some art being done there. They would definitely build roads. And they wanted to establish a little bit of political authority, and they wanted business to flourish and thrive. So Claudius establishes these five colonies. Well, especially if it's a new colony, how do you people a colony? Well, think for a moment. How did England colonize Australia? They sent all the people they didn't like there. 
They sent the convicts there. They sent the people who were causing problems. And in a new place, and a new setting, they gave them some positions of authority, some ability to succeed. And they also offloaded all of their headaches at the same time. We know Claudius deliberately pushed Jews out of Rome multiple times while he was in power. In fact, the books of Acts tells us in Acts 18, that's why Paul came to know Aquila and Priscilla, because they were Jews living in Rome who were forced to leave because Claudius was frustrated with the Jews and with the controversy Christianity was causing in Rome And so he forced them to leave, and very likely, many of them went to these new colonies. And the problem was, the locals who already lived there did not welcome strangers who had been given land and positions of authority and power, so they were not citizens in Rome, They were not welcomed locally in the new colonies where they were establishing. They were exiles with no home. They had been forced to flee their home in Rome. And instead of finding a new home, they were settled and stuck in a place where they were not welcome. And very likely, these are the people that Peter is addressing. They're Christians that had to leave because they were not welcome in Rome, and they are not welcome where they are now living. And as a result, in one sense, they've lost everything. They do not have a future that has any certainty whatsoever. But Peter tells them, in spite of this uncertainty, in spite of their almost refugee status, that who they are in Christ has everything to do with God and very little to do with where they live. And Peter uses five terms or five ideas to help these people who have been displaced and exiled understand their present position in God's kingdom and their future hope. Now, you might say, like, I haven't been forced to move out of Holly. I I hope that I never have to. Maybe a few of you who are are a little bit younger, still in school, you say, man, I can't wait to leave Holly. That might be true. But at the same time, all of us long for a kind of peace and a security. All of us hope for a kind of comfort that can't be taken from us. And at some point in time, unless your hope and your comfort is in Christ— All of us will lose that comfort. This letter is addressed to people that have lost everything, and it encourages them and helps them understand who they are, not because of their plans or their intelligence or their ability to do anything for themselves, but because of who they are in God's plan. And Peter addresses them with a few terms that I want to apply directly to us today that I hope will be an encouragement to you so that no matter what happens in November or December or January or for the rest of your life, you know who you are in Christ and you are encouraged to rest in him. First, Peter says that they are elect. They are elect. Right there in verse 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles. The term elect 
literally means called. You might think of somebody who's, who's choosing a team. If, you, if you're like me, you have nightmares of very young gym class where it didn't matter if you were playing flag football or what the game was. You had very little athletic ability and you were almost the last to be chosen. And in fact, you weren't really chosen. It was more like one team got stuck with you after everyone else was chosen. That's not how God chooses people. In fact, if anything... Think through your Old Testament history. And if you don't know the Bible well, let me introduce you to a couple of things that happened in Old Testament history. Think about how God calls Abraham. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school hearing all these great positive stories about Abraham, and then you read the Old Testament and you realize that he is a liar and a coward, you then wonder, why did God choose Abraham? And the answer is not because he was great, but because God's gracious mercy was shown in choosing someone like Abraham, who is the father of everyone who believes God. You can think of Moses, who argues with God when God calls him and chooses him. Moses said, please choose someone else, and God won't let him go. You can think not only of how God chooses guys like Abraham and Moses, You can think of the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God tells Jeremiah, before you were born, I chose you and I set you apart for this ministry. Very similarly, he calls Ezekiel. None of these guys are looking to serve God. God singles them out and chooses them. And not only does he do this with great prophets like Abraham and Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God chooses the entire nation of Israel. And God is also brutally honest with why he chooses them. He says it's not because you are stronger or wiser than any of the people around you. He says it's the exact opposite. It's because you are the least of all the peoples. And when God chooses, he sets his affection and love on someone and he will not let them go. It's not because they've earned his favor or done anything to get his blessing. Grace means a gift that we don't deserve. And God's election, God's choice is on individual believers and on the church in the same way. Now, some of you who have been around Christians for a long, you you might know about debates about election, and and I don't want to be super controversial, but I, I was reading a theologian that I have a lot of respect for, And and he said to to me very bluntly, he's been dead for 500 years, so he didn't say this to me literally. He said this to me through his writing. He said, Pastor, if you avoid talking about election because of the controversy that it causes, you are robbing your people of comfort that God wants to give them. You see, the comfort that comes from election is the fact that your salvation didn't start with you. Because if my salvation started with me, I would mess it up. I would not have hope for a future. But if my salvation starts with the God who chooses the weak, then I have great hope because God never fails. He never gives up on the people he calls. 
And so I want to encourage you, if you are a believer in Jesus, you should never wonder, did God choose me? Did God not choose me? If you believe in Jesus and your faith is in him, God chose you. And so your hope is in the God who set you apart before the foundation of the world and who loved you and who chose you to be in Christ. And Peter, looking at these exiles who've been ripped out of their homes and forced to move hundreds of miles away into a sort of frontier territory that was wild and crazy, Peter addresses them, many of them without knowing them personally, by saying, you were chosen by God. You might feel like you've lost everything and you've been ripped away from your home. You might feel like the whole world is spinning out of control. But don't lose sight of the fact that your first identity is because God chose you. You are an elect person. Even though you're in exile, even though your home is not comfortable, God chose you. Rest in God's choice. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that this is true of every Christian. Paul writes, he says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And this choice is according to God's foreknowledge. Look at verse 2. That's the exact wording Peter uses. They are elect exiles according to God's foreknowledge. And foreknowledge in Scripture is not just God's understanding of how fate happens to unfold. Foreknowledge in Scripture is God's perfect plan that never fails. Scripture is not talking about his ability to just be aware of the future. It's talking about his ability to plan it. And I want to give you two examples that demonstrate that this is true scripturally. First, from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the writer describes Jesus being delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God so that he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Pause and think about that verse for just a moment. And if you take notes, that's Acts 2.23. According to the plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You might say, well, we all have free will. Absolutely. And we all use our free will to rebel against God. And God, when he knew that Christ would die, didn't just happen to know. He rolled some dice and knew in advance how they would land. He knew that Christ would be crucified and he knew that the lawless men who rejected Jesus would hate him so much that they would crucify him. And he not only knew it, this verse clearly says he planned it. Scripture says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew that we would rebel against him and that our sin would be so grievous that the only hope that we would have is that Jesus would die in our place on the cross bearing all of the penalty for our sin. And he loved us so much that he was willing to sacrifice his only son for us. Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. And also in 1 Peter, Peter says, chapter 1, verse 20, 
Jesus is the spotless lamb who ransomed us out of our sin. And he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Peter's point is not just that God happened to know that Jesus would die for our sins. Peter is saying God's plan for Jesus predated creation. He wasn't just aware of how it would happen. He planned it. And here's why that matters to you and I and why foreknowledge matters so much to us in our lives. God's foreknowledge is not knowing how things happen. He's not trying to figure out who the good people are who are worth saving. The scripture says that all of us are sinners. No one is good. And yet God is a good and a merciful God. And he's good and merciful precisely because he saves us while we were yet sinners. And this is such good news. Because there's nothing in me that God would say, that part is worth saving. And he looks at someone else and says, there's nothing there, so I'm just going to let that one go. The reality is, all of us were hardened in our sin and rebellious, and yet God foreknew some and was willing to call them and to save them. And no matter what happens in life, God's plan does not fail. It's not just familiarity with the facts. It's an active knowledge that is full of love and affection. Think for a moment about choosing your friends. Or think for a moment about choosing the person you want to marry. When you know who it is that you want to marry, you don't sit idly by and do nothing about it, just waiting and hoping that it happens. You pursue the relationship. You do things about it. And if that's true of our partial knowledge as we try to plan our relationships, how much more true is it of God who foreknows each and every believer, who actively pursues his people, who calls them, who makes them his own, and who never lets them go. When God foreknows a person, he sets his love on them and his love never fails. And not only do you see that his foreknowledge is an active loving of a person, you see that his knowledge actually has three purposes. Now, I know this is, these are kind of deep waters. This is kind of crazy. You're like, man, why? well, hey, this is a crazy year. We need some deep waters to get through it. So here, think for a moment. If God's foreknowledge happens to be just knowing the future, his knowledge has no purpose. It's just the facts and straight facts. Nothing is accomplished through it. At most, you could say, perhaps he prepares for the future because of what he knows. But if God's foreknowledge is intentional planning and action according to plan to bring about his plans, as all of the scriptures describe it, then his knowledge can actually have purposes, and Peter gives us three of them. So you are elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father, and your election in God's foreknowledge brings about three things. First, it brings about sanctification of the Spirit. 
Sanctification of the Spirit. You might say, what on earth is sanctification? Sanctification is being made holy. Sanctification literally means being set apart for God. It also has the idea of being purified from your sin. And God says that his calling and his foreknowledge sets apart believers so that no matter where they are, and perhaps, in fact, precisely because of where they are and what is happening around them, by his Holy Spirit, he brings about their holiness. You know, one of the things that can happen in a year like 2020 is you can realize that all of your hopes were empty and vain. And as you worry about the future, you begin to ask whether or not the future that you had planned was a future that would bring you everlasting hope and everlasting life. And you start asking your questions like, what if I can't afford rent? Or what if I can't afford to send my kids to college like I thought? What if I can't afford my groceries? And you start asking yourself, where is my hope? Well, the Bible clearly describes the hope of a Christian is not in this life. Jesus clearly taught his followers. He said that you and I are not to worry about what we eat or what we wear, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of the things that we worry about, that he says non-believers worry about, all of those things God will take care of. doesn't say that he's going to give you everything you hope for. It says he's going to give you what you need and ultimately lead your heart to a holiness that trusts. Think again of the Apostle Peter. Think again of the guy that's writing this book. This is a strong-willed man who gets himself in trouble a lot. And by knowing God, the Holy Spirit sanctified Peter. So it took that guy who loved to fight and it turned him into the kind of person who was willing to die on a cross because his hope was in Christ. He was willing to preach the name of Jesus even when it would get him killed because he knew that the hope beyond the grave was so real. Moving from a person who fights for your own rights to a person who gives up all your rights for the sake of Christ, that is holiness. That is setting aside the idols you loved for the Christ who died for you. And that sanctification happens when you believe in Jesus Christ. You receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works on you from the inside out, teaching you to hate the sin that separated you from God and to begin to love the obedience that makes you more like Him. God called you, not just so that you could go do your own thing, but so that you would be made more and more like Jesus Christ. He called you and he foreknew you and his plan for you will not fail. And his plan for you is that you would be sanctified and made holy in the Holy Spirit. Very often that process is painful and difficult. And the blessings of a year like this year is we begin to hope in what God is doing in us rather than hoping for what God might do for us. So not only are we called to be sanctified in the Spirit, Peter says, we are called for obedience to Jesus Christ. He's going to develop this theme throughout the book. He's going to talk about how normally before Christ, 
You do things that everyone does. You know that famous excuse, like, everybody's doing it. And usually what they're doing is not good for anyone, but everybody's doing it. Peter says that for the Christian, we are called to obey Jesus. And if people are doing things that are disobedient to God, our allegiance to Christ calls us to obey in ways that mean we say no to ourselves and yes to God. One of the things that I believe is absolutely true throughout the scriptures, I believe that if God has known you and set you apart and called you, you can never lose your salvation. But biblically, it is also true that if you harden your heart and persist in sin, you are giving evidence that you never were saved to begin with. And Peter writes and describes a kind of life that is called to obedience to Jesus. And I don't say these things to cause anyone any fear, just the opposite. I want to say these things to encourage you to look again to Christ and to follow him in obedience. If the word of God convicts you of sin, I don't want to condemn you. I want to encourage you to repent and find grace and find forgiveness and hope. Because God hasn't called you to continue in your sin. He's called you to obey Jesus Christ. And the last thing that it says that he has called you and foreknown you and set you apart for is for the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. Now, that's a super weird phrase. You might wonder, like, what, this is a bloody religion. Yes, it is. Jesus Christ died for our sins on a literal cross and shed his literal blood because that was the price of our sins. Why is it talking about sprinkling with blood? Well, understand that. You need to think about how old covenants, old promises, or old contracts were sealed you might think of blood oaths, and, and the only place that shows up today is in horror movies and in children's rhymes, and I don't think they even let the kids use those rhymes anymore. I remember them because I'm starting to get a little bit old, but you remember the cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, like the, this is the thing that we'll do if I break this promise, this is the sacred promise. You remember promises of, of kids that are getting into trouble, is, let's make a blood oath, and somebody like pricks their finger, and you know, now we're blood brothers, we can't lie to each other. There's the shedding of blood that makes the promise sacred or serious. Well, you see this type of sacred promise throughout the Old Testament. And if you look at Exodus chapter 24, God has called his people out of Egypt. He has saved them. He has redeemed them with the blood of a lamb. He has not judged them according to their sins. He has rescued them. He has provided for them. He brings them to Mount Sinai where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the terms of the covenant. Say, these are the things you must do if you are going to be my people. And all the people say, yes, we will. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. And then to ratify that covenant, to sign on the line, they don't get out an ink pen and sign their names. They kill some animals. And Moses does two things with the blood of bulls and goats. He takes half of it and he splashes it on the altar that he set up where he slaughtered the animals. And he takes half of it and he sprinkles it on the people. You might think that is disgusting. The whole point of it, though, is that he is saying, this is how seriously we take this promise, and if we break this promise, we deserve the same penalty that these animals have paid as we make this promise. And here's the thing. Jesus Christ offers his blood as the blood of the covenant that saves you. When God chooses a person 
And God foreknows that person and sets them apart. Scripture says that the blood of Jesus is applied to that person. And the promise of God to you and for you is that because of the blood of Jesus, you are cleansed from your sin, you are redeemed, you are bought out of your old unsaved life that was under the judgment and wrath of God, and you are brought into the people of God. And Christ has borne all of your punishment for every time you break the terms of the covenant, because you will. You don't want to take that lightly, but yet the hope of the believer is that we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sins and to seal his promise. And the promise is sealed and will never be broken. And it's not your promise to God, it's God's promise to you. And so you have great hope. Church, I know that Ezra ended on a heavy note. If you were with us through that entire book, there are some high points, and the reason I wanted to preach it was because I believe that as we at First Baptist Church of Holly dedicate ourselves to knowing and doing the Word of God as it's written, we will be blessed as the people of Ezra's day are blessed. But here's what I know to be true of my life and of every church I've ever been a part of. It is hard to be faithful to the Word of God, and the end of Ezra shows that. You can think about it in terms of churches and denominations, and you can think about it in terms of colleges and institutions, and you can think about it in terms of countries. Every time there's revival, it lasts for maybe a generation, at most two. And then the people slowly turn away from God and pursue the things that every non-believing people pursue. I remember reading about Kierkegaard in college and being shocked to discover that he considered Denmark to be a Christian nation. If you know anything about Denmark, no one would claim that they are remotely Christian. But in Kierkegaard's day, nationally, they all believed they were a good Christian nation. They baptized their babies. They made sure that everyone had a Christian name, made sure that they took communion, and then they did nothing at all consistent with the life of being a Christian. Kierkegaard's writings are famous for condemning the sin of the people around him as they called themselves Christians. And you can think about the church in America that has, by and large, widely embraced the sins of America. And as we turn back to the word of God, I pray that we have the strength and the humility to confess our sins and to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Especially in this year as things seem to be getting worse and worse. I don't say that to be a pessimist. I say that to be prepared to trust in the mercy of God and to call upon him. I believe the church needs to lead in seeking God's blessing on us and on our nation. And not in a way that says, God, please be on my side, but the way that says, God, please let us be on your side. God, let us be humble before you. God, forgive us and heal us. And the reason I want to go to 1 Peter now is because the end of Ezra is so heavy, we need the comfort and encouragement that God is faithful to his promises. That when times are uncertain and when times are frightening and when we do not feel at home, God is faithful. His plans do not fail. And so the last thing that Peter says in this short little introduction after he calls his readers elect exiles 
and describes the foreknowledge of God that sets them apart, that sanctifies them in the spirit for the obedience to Jesus, for the sprinkling of his blood, he issues this short prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace, it's favor that we do not deserve. It's the love of God given to guilty sinners who could not earn it. And peace. I want to talk to you about two people many of you know who are part of our church. I talked to both of them before this message. I think I got the green light from both of them, so I think I'm good here. Gail Carpenter grew up in a broken home with an abusive stepmom. He said from 14 on, the one thing he wanted was to leave. And in fact, I remember you told me you ran away literally once. And were you 14 by then? I think you said you were like 12, 11 or 12. Things were so bad, he figured he was better off as an 11 or 12-year-old just becoming a hobo trying to live on his own than staying with his family. He joined the army at 17 to get away from everything. And a few months after he joined, he was encouraged by a lady to go to officer training, which was an idea that he hated because he hated authority. And when he said no, he didn't want to pursue officer training, the lady kind of pushed him and asked him, he said, well, what do you want out of life? And in a moment of almost frustration, not even knowing completely what he meant, he said, I just want peace. And in one sense, I think what you meant in part was, I want to be left alone. I want abusive people to get off my back. And it wasn't for another 12 years that he came to know Christ. And he had the peace of experiencing his sins being forgiven. And he said, Gail is now in his 74-ish, in his 70s. He said, peace means more to me now than it did then. Peace is a deep, confident contentment in who I am and who God is and that I can count on him. Did you catch that? That is the exact outline of what Peter just said here. Peter describes who we are, who God is, and that we can count on him. That is what you have in Christ, not because you keep all your promises. You and I have broken all of our promises. We have peace because God keeps his promises. And he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. And not only did he die in our place, but he ascended to heaven and he is guiding and directing all of human history, and he knows you, and he knows your life, he knows your fears, he knows your failures, and he loves you, and he will not let you go. So Gail is one example of somebody who wanted peace and found it in Christ. Let me give you another example, because maybe that's not true to you. Maybe, maybe you don't, you know, I didn't grow up in an abusive household. I've got, I've got a pretty good life. In fact, I know a couple of people in our church said, you know, I, God has blessed me in a lot of ways. So Dave Goodrich Dave Goodrich said to me, he was a young guy, had graduated from college, he'd married Marsha, they'd bought their first house, he had a new car, and in so many ways he was feeling successful, and yet he felt empty and had to ask the question, is this all there is? Those people drive you crazy because you think, man, if I just had the house, I'd be happy. He has the house and he's still not happy. And so when he came and visited First Baptist Church of Holly and then a couple of deacons came and visited his house, 
He said to me, after he talked to them for quite a while, they'd visited with him and talked about the faith a little bit. So they left, and he said to Marsha, I don't know quite what they have, but I want it. I don't know what they have, but I want it. And friends, what every Christian has is they have grace and they have peace. They have God's love, and they have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They have peace with their fellow Christians. And so one guy's trying to escape abuse, just hopes to have peace. Another guy achieves everything and still feels lost. And both of them found peace in Jesus Christ. And I believe that you can have that same peace. And so I want to take this outline and apply it very directly to you. And if we were sitting just across the table and it was just the two of us, I would want to say your name and apply this directly to you. That God has sent someone to tell you the good news. You remember the first outline is the shepherd that Jesus sent. He sent Peter. Well, we have a letter from Peter. It's 2,000 years old now, but it's the message that Peter faithfully proclaims to us. And it's a message of grace and peace. God has sent someone to you to tell you this message. The question is, will you receive it and will you believe it? I know some people... Few people have reached out and talked to me about people who are watching online, people who I believe have been part of our church for years, and not everyone has believed this yet. They're on the fence, and I just want to ask you, why are you still on the fence? God has sent someone to you to tell you the good news. Will you believe it? Not only that, as you hear the good news, if you respond in faith, that is because God has foreknown you for a purpose. So as you begin this life of faith, your confidence is in God, not in you. I remember as a new Christian for years, I was so confused about this. I used to pray the sinner's prayer at least once a week. We would have Christian radio on, I'd hear different preachers preaching and saying, if you've never prayed this prayer before, you should pray this prayer. And I think, well, I prayed it last week, but I don't know if I did it right. I don't know if I really believed when I prayed it. That's not how you become a Christian. You become a Christian when you place all of your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, and the hope is in him, not in your prayer. And if you rest in Jesus Christ, here's what you do. You begin to obey him, and the first thing that you do in obedience is you are baptized just as he commanded you to be baptized. Baptism says that you die with Christ. The reason you're forgiven is that you are associated with him. So his death becomes your death. Your sins are paid for because you are united to him by faith. And baptism shows that faith that you die with Christ and it shows your hope that you are raised with Christ. So if you want to trust Jesus Christ as your savior, I wanna invite you to be baptized. You can text me, you can email me, you can come up to me after service. We will baptize you next week. But I wanna urge you, if you've heard the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, place your faith in him and immediately begin to obey him. Don't put it off. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time. I want to urge you as we go through this book to examine your life to see if you are faithfully being obedient to the Lord Jesus. And as you rest in the fact that God has sent a shepherd to you to give you good news, and that you are someone who has been foreknown by God, who has been called by God, God will give you grace and peace. 
And I want to urge you as we close this message, and you, you might ask the question, well, how do you know you're chosen? How do you know if God foreknew you? Friend, I want to say to you very directly, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can have confidence that God chose you. The Bible issues an open invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that is a good and a faithful promise. You can take it to the bank. So I want to invite you, if you have fears and if you have doubts, I'm not going to lead you in the sinner's prayer and say, pray this one more time. I'm going to say, rest in the faithfulness and the promises of God. He will not fail you. Believe wholly in Jesus Christ. Rest in the fact that he has died for you and raised you from the dead. And no matter what God calls you to in this life, whether you lose your job and you have to leave Holly, or whether God gives you deep roots here and you end up dying here, you can have hope that the shepherd who called you is the shepherd who will lead you home. If your faith is in Jesus, it's my prayer that today you would be encouraged. And as we go through this book, you would be encouraged. And if your faith is not in Jesus, then nothing I've said applies to you. You have no guarantee of a hope or a future. In fact, the Bible says quite plainly that the wrath of God will come on those who reject Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to trust in Jesus and be baptized. I believe God is calling you now Today is the day of salvation. Be saved, be obedient, and rest in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe that your word is powerful. We want to submit ourselves to it. And I ask that you would help us to rest in it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in your foreknowledge in your election and in your calling. And I pray that in fearful and uncertain times, you would give us hope in your faithfulness. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.